Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again this week. If you're able, uh, join me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We'll read again, starting in verse 16 here in just a moment. And we have for several weeks now uh, been looking carefully at this section that started in verse 16 of Paul's letter. He has been dealing with this uh, divergence between the spirit and the flesh, the battle between flesh and spirit. It's been giving us much to consider, much to repent of, much to rejoice for. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing specifically with the uh, work of the flesh, and we've seen that list as something of a painting. If you've been here, you've, you've remembered us using that, that language. Uh, he paints a picture in the New Testament lots of times about life in the flesh, what that looks like. And when he paints those pictures in different places in the New Testament, because of the same general picture, they have a lot of similarities, uh, but often there are many differences in the details of those paintings, depending on who he's painting for. Uh, what we'll see this morning is that the same is true regarding the fruit of the Spirit. This is where we'll be spending our time and focus this week. He's going to end the list of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 23 by referring to such things, which is the same expression he used after the works of the flesh, things like these. So this list of qualities that we're going to be looking at is not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. Colossians 3.12 mentions compassion and humility. Are those qualities created in God's people by the Spirit of God? Well, they certainly are, but they're not mentioned here in our text in Galatians. They would obviously fit the picture, though. So the individual items here serve us best as we take in the picture that he's painting uh, as a whole while noticing the details in it. There's really benefit to doing both of those things. I don't pretend for a moment to be an uh, an art aficionado or an art appreciator, I wouldn't qualify for that. But I can sense the value of getting up close with a work of art and looking at the details and also standing back and taking the entire thing in. And so as we did last week, we'll seek to do the same thing this week. Uh, another similarity from last week to this is uh, when we looked last week at that eight-word list of qualities, remember dealing with interpersonal strife and the things that divide uh, brothers, uh, we did not look equally at every single word in that list. And we'll do the same thing again this morning. What I want to do for us this morning is first look at the detail level uh, and do that by noticing four specific details, focusing on four of these qualities uh, and uh, what we gain from, from them, because these are some things that might not be immediately noticeable to us as we hear him just roll through the list here. So we'll begin with that detailed level. Uh, and then secondly, we'll step back and maybe put our chins in our palms a little bit and stare at the painting as a whole. And we'll see then and we'll discuss five observations that come from the list as a whole and especially what Paul does at the end in verses 23 and 24. And if we remember that the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of this painting of the fruit of the Spirit, we can indeed expect, can't we? to be moved and to be changed as we're confronted by it. So let's begin by reading. Again, we'll read uh, this week verses 16 down to verse 24. I'll read from the English Standard Version. 
If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we begin this morning with our faces up near to the painting, looking at some of the details that he uh, gives to us. And some of the things that I would like to point out are points of clarification uh, to help us understand what really is behind his intent when he gives us these qualities. Others of these are simply things that Others have said regarding some of these fruits that have been tremendously helpful to me, and I just want to share them with you. I want you to be blessed with some of the thoughts that I've been blessed with this week as I've been looking at this list. Uh, and maybe in a way, uh, I would begin by addressing the men in the room uh, for a moment. Uh, I've been a bit surprised uh, in, in reading this, this week and, and thinking about these words to, to realize how often it's the case that for many of these fruit of the Spirit, um, there have been many points and many people who have spoken of and treated some of these qualities as somehow uniquely feminine traits. Uh, now, certainly we know that with, with characteristics and manifestations, there can be feminine and masculine manifestations of a given characteristic. That may certainly be true. But I would want to say to us all, maybe to the men especially, but to all of us, um, and some of what we'll, we'll talk about in these details will bear this out specifically on the word level. These are far from being uniquely feminine or masculine traits. Far from it. They are very proper and properly expressed in both a feminine and a masculine context. And really the mistake behind that might be a mistake that, that thinks of the feminine realm and feminine characteristics as somehow... Uh, displays or calls to a type of weakness. Does God's word call his daughters to weakness and his, his sons to strength? Is that what we find? I mean, not at all. Uh, not at all. And in fact, for all of us in here, it's very important that we recognize that we are misunderstanding God's calling and equipping. If we come to a list of the fruit of the Spirit and find anything in the list to be examples of weakness, the manifestations of the Spirit of God are not demonstrations of weakness, but of power. 
You could say it this way. The Holy Spirit does not sap God's people of strength. He builds us up. Now, those things, there's more to say about that, of course. There are roles and there are manifestations, but nothing on this list is unique to a particular category of believer. This is the way that the Spirit works in the life of a believer, and it all is strength. Some of what we'll see in in a couple of these words will make that point more clear. Uh, Like I said, some of this will simply be sharing blessed words from other people. And the first is like that. So the first detail that I'd like us to look at uh, has to do with the word joy, the second word on this list, love, joy. I want to share with you what Spurgeon wrote about this uh, blessed state. Uh, I'm, I'm often encouraged by him. Listen to what he said here. He said, if in reading the history of the first Christian centuries, you are asked to point out the men to be envied for their joy, you would point to believers in Jesus. There is a room in Rome that is filled with the busts of the emperors. They look like a collection of prize fighters and murderers. And scarcely could you discover on any countenance a trace of joy. Brutal passions and cruel thoughts deprived the lords of Rome of all chance of joy. There were honorable exceptions to this rule, but taking them as a whole, you would look in vain for moral excellence among the Caesars. Lacking this thing of beauty, they missed that which is a joy. Now he continues, listen to this. Turn now to the poor hunted Christians. And read the inscriptions left by them in the catacombs. They are so calm and peaceful that you say instinctively, a joyous people gathered here. Those who have been most eminent in service and in suffering for Christ's sake have been of a triumphant spirit, dauntless, because supported by an inner joy. Their calm courage made them the wonder of the age. End quote. Now, it strikes me when I read that, first of all, it highlights, does it not, how otherworldly true joy is? But it strikes me that the Bible always commends joy to us and describes God's children as joyful, even as it calls us to lives of humility and suffering and persecution to setting our hopes on a life that is to come and not on this one, so that our entire life, in that sense, lacks in a kind of satisfaction. In spite of all of that, joy is what the Spirit of God both promises and creates in his children. You can see in the descriptions that Spurgeon gave, and you can see increasingly in our own lives as we come to see our place in our in our. Uh, in our cultural setting, you can see the connection between joy and eternal mindedness. That's a connection we must not miss in our day. The second word I draw your attention to is the word patience. Love, joy, peace, patience. This word encompasses steadfastness and uh, staying power. How about that? Staying power. One person wrote this, if in English we had an adjective long-tempered as a counterpart to short-tempered, which why don't we, by the way? That would, be, that would fit. If we had a, a, a word long-tempered as a counterpart to short-tempered, he wrote, then this word could be called the quality of being long-tempered. 
Maybe because it's visual, I don't know, but that helps me quite a bit uh, to, to hear what Paul is commending and what the Spirit of God grants in the life of those who are walking after the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a quality that we all wished we possessed more of, isn't it? Long-temperedness. Uh, it's a quality of incredible toughness. Maybe not the way we think of the quality. Patience. Might that be one of those qualities that some could think of and somehow uh, uh, in terms of weakness? Patience. We recently watched in our home in the last couple of months, the first Rocky movie. Uh, Often Rocky goes up against the larger, bulkier guys. Uh, Which one is tougher? The one with the biggest muscles or the one who can take your best shot right to the jaw and remain standing? Patience is a very specific type of immense toughness. And as we're hearing and seeing the picture that he's painting, it's helpful to see that detail as it ought to be seen. Third, we're going to go through these fairly quickly. The third uh, word I would point us to is the word goodness. And I point you to this word in order to give a very possible clarification. Many see what Paul's doing with this word. This is not unanimous, but there is a great, uh, pretty recognizable consensus that he is using that word not to simply speak about general goodness. Now, he may be doing that. And if he's doing that, it fits perfectly in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. That would be fine. But there is for them a very common use of this word goodness that has an idiomatic meaning. It's an expression. Uh, Especially what you find is when it's used as a counterpart to envy, which we see in the works of the flesh right above this. Uh, You will find envy and you will find goodness set apart from each other often. And goodness is intentionally speaking about generosity. Goodness of that kind. Intentional goodness towards others with the things that we have and what we can can serve others with. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'll read to you Matthew 20, verse 15. Jesus ends there by asking a question. Let me read to you what he literally says. He literally says this. Or is your eye evil because I am good? That's what he says. Is your eye evil because I am good? Here's how the ESV translates that. Or do you begrudge my generosity? That's what you'll find there. It's not a paraphrase. It's a very good translation. Because he is using figures of speech. To have an evil eye for them is a commonly understood expression about um, envy or greed. Are you envious? So you remember the context there. He's just been speaking about a diversity of freedom to give to to people based on his own good pleasure and not based on how much they have worked. And they are envious of this. So you have an evil eye. This is a greedy person or looking on someone with greediness or envy. And you have a good eye, uh, and that goodness denotes generosity. It's very likely that that's the idea that we're meant to have in our minds when we see in the fruit of the Spirit this word goodness. Because, again, he's just spoken of envy in the counterpart list right before it. Now, either way you go, if it's general goodness or if it's generosity specifically, we would agree both of those ideas are realities that are produced as a result of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So we remember that this list is exemplary and not restrictive or definitive. 
But I think it's good that you have at least the possibility in your mind as you read this list, because many think that's what he is intending us to hear, is generosity. Uh, fourth detail to describe before we step back and look at the entire painting. Uh, the word gentleness. Gentleness. Verse 23, gentleness and self-control are the last two. Gentleness is the same word as the word for meekness. The two are used interchangeably. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, it's the same word here, the adjective form of this noun. Uh, when I think of what the Bible says about gentleness or meekness, there are two men that come to my mind in particular in Scripture. Do you have anyone, any, anyone from the Bible that comes to mind immediately when you hear meekness or gentleness that are especially described in that way? Many would fit the bill. But two come to my mind right away. Jesus Christ would be one. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says of himself, I am gentle or meek uses this word, I am gentle and lowly or humble. Uh, the second that comes to my mind is Moses in the Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament in Numbers 12, 3, it says of Moses, Moses was very meek, more than this word, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And the question that comes to my mind that I think we need to consider as we're thinking about the details of this list is, does my definition of gentleness and meekness that I have in my mind, does it match the persons of Jesus and Moses as they are described? Do they fit my conception of gentleness, meekness? What, what does this word mean? I have to be careful uh, to, to not assume that a word means exactly what I have thought it to mean uh, everywhere that I uh, that I encounter it. This word received a lot of attention in the New Testament time, probably because they were very uh, Greek culture dominated, and the Greeks were all about virtue and vice and, and these things. Uh, much written in the New Testament, there's a great deal about meekness or gentleness. And the, the Greek obsession with this really came all the way back to the 4th century BC. Both Plato and Aristotle wrote about this word and described uh, how it was to be understood and what it meant. And the picture that they give is a picture of intentional restraint. So, for example, Aristotle described two extremes and said this word is right in the middle of those two. Right? You, you have the extreme, and hopefully this doesn't lead you to think of someone that you know or of yourself, but you have the extreme of an utterly irascible um, angry against everyone on all occasions kind of person. That would be one extreme. On the other end of the spectrum, you have another extreme. And he coined a word that means uh, unangry. This was the other extreme. This is a person he described with some very um, colorful descriptions. This is a, uh, having a lack of spirit. Or get this, spineless, he says, a form of spineless incompetence. The characteristic of never being angry with anyone for any reason. That's the other extreme. Now, one question to consider is, have I defined in my mind meekness as actually what that other extreme is? To me, is meek or gentle someone who never is angry for anything over any reason? That would be the wrong way to think of this word. It's not what this word is getting at. No, we place it right in the middle of those two, the proper middle. So, for example, William Barclay 
uh, after speaking about the, uh, the use of this word in its context, he defined a gentle or meek person in this way. One who is angry for the right reasons, in the right way, at the right things, and for the right length of time. Now, I think that's worth saying a second time. What worries me is we're defining the word in terms of anger, but I hope you don't hear it that way. We're defining the word in terms of conscious, deliberate limitations and restrictions of anger and all of its inappropriate forms. Meek person, one who is angry for the right reasons, in the right way, at the right things, and for the right length of time. So this is not someone who is incapable of becoming stern or harsh when necessary. This is the increasing strength within a person only to become stern or harsh when necessary for godliness and only to do it in a godly way. It's an important difference. So we'll, we'll, we'll walk away from the detailed uh, close-up view just with, I guess, a final question again on this word of meekness. Does this word in your mind denote weakness? If it does, I hope you see that you have misunderstood what, what is commended to us here and what the Bible tells us God is creating in his people. It is not a weakness, but a strength. One person put it this way, it is not meekness, but rage that disables a man and takes away his courage and discretion. Now, if we chose to, we could do similar things with some of the other items on this list. I've chosen not to do that. But you take what we've already seen in these four words and you add to them the realities of peace and kindness and faithfulness, which is speaking about dependability, trustworthiness, self-control, and my goodness, you've got man, woman, or child, you've got a picture of someone who stands like a rock in this world, don't you? Unshakable because peace and confidence are located securely in another world and cannot be touched by this one. It's the picture that you see. We'll continue to think about this. But what I'd like us to do now is to step back a bit. We'll put down the magnifying glass. And let's take in the fruit of the Spirit as a whole and see what strikes us. Let's also notice some specific things that Paul says in verses 23 and 24. And this time, we'll go, and we'll go through these fairly quickly. Don't worry. But we'll go from four to five, right? Five observations I want us to take note of in the big picture here. Um, the first thing I'd like us to do is to think about what it means. And you just look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Think about it, what, it, what it means that these traits are universally desirable. Paul's going to get at some of this here a bit later. But do you see how universally these are Desirable traits, qualities to have. Imagine having a friend or a spouse or a parent who is fully and perfectly summed up with these descriptions. It's exactly what everybody wants, isn't it? Do you, have you ever gone around looking for an inherently unfaithful person to make your best friend? Have you ever done that? Has anyone that you know ever taught their daughter to go out and find for themselves an incredibly 
impatient and unkind man for their husband? Nobody does that. Imagine telling your beloved child or your parent who you love, speaking of them and saying, well, you know, I just wish they had a little less joy in their life. It's their only problem. A little less joy would be good. Nobody does that because these are universal. It's similar in that way to the eternal law of God. And Paul talks in Romans 2 about how even unbelievers instinctively show that they know of the eternal law because they're written on everyone's hearts. This is something, when I was thinking about this this week, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, came to mind because of something that he says on this. I, I don't agree with everything he would do in that book, but he made an excellent point on this end. He speaks about this for several pages, and then he sums it up this way. He says, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. And it's the same here. We know these qualities are desirable and yet, and yet over and over again in ways quite natural to us, we live otherwise. We make choices that lead us in other directions than these things. Now the second observation, and we'll then we're just adding on here as we go. Let's add to what we've seen the significance of Paul's naming these two lists in two different ways. He called the, the, the first list uh, works of the flesh. And then there is the fruit of the spirit. In other words, these good qualities that we all desire but find ourselves failing to create or to live in, what is the reason for that? Well, the reason is these are not qualities that are the product of the natural self. These are not the qualities of the old man, as we've been seeing in this section. And to get at this, Paul describes it very carefully. He could have made the two lists showing two different principles and called this one the works of the spirit. It would have matched the works of the flesh. There would be a, something synonymous there, but he doesn't do that. And the reason is that to do that, to call these the works of the spirit, would be misleading in some ways. When a person exhibits qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, let's say patience. When a person exhibits patience as a result of the Spirit growing this in them and producing this, it is not true to say that the Holy Spirit is being patient for them, is it? The Holy Spirit's not the one being patient in that case. I'm the one being patient as I display patience. But in naming them fruit of the Spirit, Paul's making clear that where one finds the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit, these are the qualities that grow as a result. So it protects us on both of those ends for potential misunderstanding. Now the third observation, notice when you take the fruit of the Spirit as a unit, notice how others-oriented they are. We saw this in, in uh, much of the works of the flesh. But the same is true here. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are certainly words in there that apply to me individually and the, 
in the secrecy of my own heart. But this list as a whole is a complete transformation as to how communities happen, how I would relate to those outside of me. Michael Horton speaks to this end in a helpful way. He says, much of popular devotion is focused on the inner life of the individual believer. In contrast, the scriptures place the emphasis on the Spirit's work of opening us up and turning us outside of ourselves, looking up to God in faith and out to our neighbors in love. The fruit of the Spirit has to do with the way we relate to others. How do I, as a finger or an elbow, contribute to the whole body's health? The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is not speaking in tongues or healings or new revelations, but patience, joy, love, peace, self-control, and so forth, end quote. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to us in light of what we've seen in the last two weeks. We have seen, if you've been here with us, that the driving desire of the flesh is self-enthronement. If that's the case, and the Spirit has come warring against the flesh, we would expect this to be the natural emphasis of the Spirit's work. Now, the opposite of self-enthronement. This is a freedom from that in a transformed life that does just exactly what Horton says. It turns us outside of ourselves. And this list certainly displays a life like that, but in particular in a way that emphasizes the others-oriented life that we are granted, as we are freed from obsession with self, worship of self. Christ really did come to set us free. So we've noticed, just in thinking about the list of traits itself, we've noticed how uh, universally desirable they are, even though we fail to manage to pursue them ourselves. Uh, we've seen that Paul is making a point in calling them fruit of the Spirit. And we've also recognized that their presence fosters fellowship inherently. They are others-oriented traits. Uh, there are two observations left of those five I mentioned. These last two are things that are made explicitly by Paul in the passage. So for the fourth one, look down at verse 23. Notice that the painting that he's giving us of the fruit of the Spirit represents an accomplishment that no law has ever or could ever accomplish. He finishes the description, the general description, and he says this, against such things there is no law. What are the sorts of circumstances that we create a new law in? What is, what is the, um, the desire, what is the proper place in which we say, let's pass a law? Well, let's see. You make a law against an external behavior that you want to regulate, restrict. Uh, you make a law when you are trying to produce a certain outcome that you can produce by requiring or prohibiting something. Those would be times when you would make a law. And it's not difficult to realize when you think of those in relation to the fruit of the Spirit that neither of those scenarios apply to what we're finding here in the fruit of the Spirit. Nobody wants to regulate or restrict these things, first of all. But secondly, and even more to Paul's intended point, I think, no law is capable of affecting this kind of change. It's exactly the point he's been making to the Galatians overall in this letter, isn't it? As they consider a return to the Mosaic law for some type of increase in holiness, uh, nearness to God. Uh, 
The problem is that law is not the avenue that creates these things. And it's not hard to think of examples of that reality. You could outlaw instances of the sort of visible, flaunting sexual immorality that was pictured in verse 19. You could make laws to outlaw that. Those laws will be useless in actually making someone a faithful person. No, won't they? You can enact laws prohibiting certain kinds of fits of anger, for example. Um, And someone could break that law and they could be punished for it. Someone else might see that law and the punishment and decide, I don't think I want to do that. And it would curb that behavior. But did that make that individual suddenly a kind, patient, gentle person? It had no effect on that level of things, none at all. The fruit of the Spirit are qualities, in other words, that if they're to be created and nurtured, they're going to have to be created and nurtured by means of some principle other than the principle of law. Greg Allison said it well. He said, only the Spirit is able to affect a lasting transformation of a person's character. The law is ultimately powerless to do so. Now let's add to that one last thing. We're sort of building up here. The fifth and final observation to make here about this list as a whole. And it's not just an observation about the fruit of the Spirit. This is is an observation about this entire section. The whole flesh versus spirit principle uh, that we have been dealing with, that Paul has been giving to us since verse 16. It's the observation that this battle between flesh and spirit. We saw it described in verse 17. You remember that? The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Here's what we find in verse 24. This battle that he's been describing is a battle to the death. It's a battle to the death. The only hope in escaping the domination of the flesh And remember, a life dominated by the sinful principle of the flesh is a life that will not be granted access to the kingdom of God. This is a big deal. The only hope in escaping the domination of the flesh is to belong to Christ Jesus. The reason that Christ Jesus is our hope in this, we find in verse 24. He finishes in this way. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sin, or the principle of sin, here's maybe a way to think about the fall. What happened at the fall? It's not language we use often, but maybe we can think of it this way. At the fall, here's what happened to mankind. The principle of sin put the principle of spiritual life to death in God's image bearers. So that when we are born in the flesh, The flesh stands triumphantly alive, standing in victory over a dead spiritual principle of life. We are born spiritually dead, fleshly very much alive. When God grants us unity with his Son, when we are granted regeneration through the gift of faith and we're united to his Son, what happens is new spiritual life is breathed into you. We've seen that in the last few weeks. It proceeds to war against the flesh. But we try to make the point, 
in that passage that this war is not a war of two equal and opposite forces and let's cross our fingers and hope that the right side comes out on top. This is a war that is waged in the spirit with great confidence and hope. We see, we see even more detail here as to why we should have confidence and hope. The spirit is alive in the battle. Here's the question. What's the state of things for the principle of flesh in me as I, a Christian, wage war for the rest of my life? What state is the flesh in for those who have been washed by the blood of Christ? And I mentioned Spurgeon before. Boy, does he describe this in a way that is hard to forget. He said this, by crucified the flesh here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. This is meant. Condemned it to die, nailed it up to the cross, and kept it in a dying, mortifying posture. A crucified Christ is the leader of a crucified people. Let it never be forgotten that the grand object for which we lay hold of Christ is the death of sin. If you believed in Christ so that you might escape the pangs of hell, you have a very poor idea of what Jesus Christ has come into the world to do. He is proclaimed to be a Savior who shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. And he explains about this flesh with its passions and desires crucified. He, he describes it in this way. They may not actually be dead, for those who are crucified may still live on for some hours, but they are doomed to die. Their life is a very painful one, and it is hastening to a close. A man who is crucified cannot get down from the cross to do what he wills. It is a great blessing to have our sinful self thus nailed up. It may struggle but it cannot get down. It may strive and cry, but its hands and feet are nailed. The Lord grant that the nails may hold very fast, that none of the struggles of our old nature may be able to pull out those nails that have fastened it up to the cross. And happy indeed shall be that day when it shall be wholly dead. And amen to that. Happy shall be that day. Let's not fail to answer his maybe implicit question there. Um, can that flesh come off the cross and come back down in my life? I understand the answer to that question if I'm clear about how it has been crucified. I did not crucify my flesh. He's pointing us back to Galatians 2 where the point is very clear. I have been crucified with Christ. The crucifixion of the flesh happened on the day when Christ was crucified. And so there's hope for the flesh in a believer to one day prevail if there's hope for Jesus to somehow fail to have been found acceptable in the sight of God, which is another way to say it. there is no hope for that. One who has been covered by the finished work of Christ, clothed in his righteousness, this one is utterly safe. Weary though the battle may be, and many though the black eyes may be, this one is safe. So here's what we've seen in this passage. You, my Christian friend, you along with me, we're going to live out the rest of our days in this life engaged in a great civil war. It is flesh versus spirit. 
But that battle is on display primarily in terms of the goals of those two forces. So we could say it this way. It is self-enthronement versus conscious submission to the will of my Lord for my life. Here's a true statement about the Galatians in this passage. The Galatians are not called upon to work at being more virtuous. They are summoned to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. And I would have us just conclude by thinking about that principle right there. What is, what's, what's being given to the Galatians in this list? I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. The Galatians are not called upon to work at being more virtuous. They are summoned to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. What is the difference between those things? My suggestion would be this, that this means that as we pursue Christ-likeness, we're living in something of a paradox. We want to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, yet we don't proceed by pursuing that fruit directly. We proceed by pursuing Christ directly. That is the path of faith that we are led forward on by the Holy Spirit. In other words, There is nothing here in Galatians chapter 5 of a self-improvement program. It's not what he's giving us at all. We're told to pick up our cross, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and to rest in him. We cling to his righteousness. We come to be shown more and more on this path. Our sins and failings. And we weep over those sins. And yet it only makes us more and more grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ. As that path goes on, a path in which I'm really not thinking first and foremost about myself and my own development, I'm fixing my eyes on my Savior in gratitude. As that path goes on, guess what's happening in me? A deep well of gratitude is filling. For a work finished on my behalf. And what does that produce? Love, joy, peace, as I hear in Romans, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those things suddenly describe me much more than they ever did before. I grow in my awareness of how short I've fallen to God's standard and how undeserving God's grace is in my case. And then I keep living and interacting with others, and what do I find Some patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness towards others. The more I live and experience his mercy and his goodness, the more settled I become that this life does not belong to me. I'm not my own. I belong to another. And suddenly, as that becomes truer and truer in my awareness and my consciousness, suddenly something else is growing dimmer and dimmer. My own passions and desires no longer have the domineering control over me that they used to. Which is to say I suddenly find in areas growth in self-control. In all of that, on all that entire path, I'm not seeking my own self-improvement. I've given up hope in my own self-improvement projects. I'm seeking to know, to love, and to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that journey, here's what we find. 
with the authority of God's word, the Holy Spirit does not leave us unchanged along that path. Let's pray together. Father, we again come to you grateful. You are showing us so much as to, even at the detail level, um, what we can expect in this life that we walk as believers, members of your kingdom, and yet those who are not yet glorified, those who still are living in the flesh. And everything that you have shown us over these past weeks causes us to bow humbly before you. Everything you have shown us causes us to cling the harder to Christ because we see this list of the, the works of the flesh and we see ourselves in these things. We see the consistent uh, desires of our own flesh, our own failings. It makes us tremble before you. It makes us cling to your son. It makes us all the more grateful that he knew us when he saved us. It is false that Jesus Christ did not know what he was getting himself into when he poured out his blood for me. He knew me better than I know myself, and he loved me. So what you have shown us leads us to an even deeper and greater love of our Savior. Lord, I pray for us as a church family as we continue to walk forward that these things that you are working in us individually and in us corporately, that they would more and more shine out and be what you intend them to be, that you would feed and love and shepherd your people by means even of what you're doing in us individually. Give us a great zeal for pouring out the fruit of the Spirit that you have given to us on one another. We thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ and his perfect sacrifice. In his name we pray. Amen. The Lord